one of the interesting traits about the Ramitel was changing your mind. And we're not here to, just to discuss the normal traits of a Bodhis Hashem, humility, piety, prayer, commitment to Torah, but growth as a person, and growth as an Abed Hashem is based on growth as a person. So, here's a hard story to wrap your head around. So you have to follow the story. It's a story within a story that's really cute. Rav Amital was so well-known and so um, in, in, engaging and interesting as an educator that people actually did research projects on his Torah. So someone did a research project on his relationship with the Shoah. I think he wrote his doctorate on that. That became the safer about Rav Amital and the Shoah. And someone wrote an autobiography on Rav Amital. And interestingly enough, many of these people were not his Tamidim in the Gush. People Tamidim in the Gush, they knew him. But he was very intriguing to people outside the Gush orbit. So evidently, a Talmud, or someone who wasn't really a Talmud, had done a research project on Rav Amital and had come to the conclusion that Rav Amital changed his mind a lot. Changed his opinions. And he brought it to Rav Amital to show it to him after he finished the research. And someone close to Rav Amital told the following story that Rav Amital was very upset by it. He didn't like the, the concept, he didn't like the research project, he didn't agree with the conclusions. But then he thought about it a few minutes and he changed his mind. He said he liked it. <laughs> So Ravamital changed his mind a lot. And two issues in particular people speak about a lot and I witnessed. He was very much a traditionalist. He came from Hungary. He didn't have a high school degree. And and he really connected us to the pre-European world and the personalities of the pre-European world, the pre-Holocaust world. And many times in the early stages he spoke about that women should play traditional roles. There's really no need for women's Torah education. Their roles are as mothers, and not in any way that's diminishing or demeaning. So these are very important roles, and sometimes people can skip or ignore these roles just searching for newfangled revolutionary ideas. But he didn't feel that it was such a big need that women should be learning Torah. And then later on in his life, as things evolved and he saw the world changing, he was obviously a strong supporter of women's learning and opportunities for women to learn, and of course was the founding force behind the Magdalos institution. The second issue that he changed his mind about a lot was the state of Israel. Um, he was much more, um, how should I say it, influenced by the Rav Cook view that land acquisition and settling territories and returning to the homeland was at the core and the crux of the whole Zionist enterprise, and then in the 80s he felt that maybe there's too much attention placed on land, not much, not enough attention placed on people, or um, he thought that maybe, he would talk about every year Hanukkah, about how we should view the state of Israel, and he would update it every year. About, in the beginning he thought the state of Israel was important because it provided a refuge to rebuild the Jewish people and to take in refugees and have a safe haven. And then as the state got a little stronger, we talked about the state of Israel as um, as a government that could represent morality and ethics in this world, that could demonstrate what the Jewish people, their message, their historical message. Um, there's a very, an event that many of you may not have heard of in the 1980s when the Israeli army was in Lebanon. So there was a refugee camp of, of Arabs there's people living there, and some Christian Arabs came in and committed a massacre. And it had nothing to do with the Jewish army, but it had everything to do because we were in control of that land when we had invaded Lebanon during the first Lebanese war. And that made him realize that we were becoming a little bit too hawkish and a little bit too, um, 
um, and in the 80s and 90s where there were real opportunities for peace. At least many people thought there were. He therefore felt that peace was something that was achievable and that would warrant even exchange of lands. Obviously today, no, no one would think of those terms. Um, so there's a lot of changes about the state of Israel, its political positions, um, the, the degree of messianism in the state of Israel. So the point is, why is changing your mind so important in life and how do you change your mind? Very often you have people that adopt these positions and they get stuck in those positions. And then when reality changes from under their feet, positions become very, very unrealistic and very, very detached from life and your people. So how do you become someone that's fluid, that's dynamic, that's constantly, not constantly, because that's wiffle waffle and that's lack of conviction, but the ability to change. And some of these changes he adopted very late in his life, in the 70s, he had positions that would change radically. I think it's twofold. Number one, it's just being attentive and attuned to the reality. Sometimes, especially people who are ideologues, especially people who have high-minded ideas, you adopt these ideas and you get locked in your ideas and you're going to shape the world to fit your ideas rather than shaping and reshaping your ideas to respond to the ever-changing world. It's a little bit like Yosef and Yehuda. I talked about this before, some of you came to the yeshiva. Yosef is a dreamer. He's got these preconceived notions about how reality is going to unfold, about his role in the family, about his leadership potential. And even when reality doesn't necessarily accommodate it, he'll engineer reality to accommodate his dreams. And he'll manipulate the brothers and drag them to Mitzrayim because he knows that there's this noble goal that's worth pursuing. And you hear that doesn't have any dreams. He's much more responsive. He's just, he responds to the, 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 the attempt to kill Yosef. He responds to the story with Tamar. He responds to Yaakov's fear of sending down the He responds to Yosef capturing the brothers in the Tarshish by Yigash. And it's ironic that Rabbi Amitel's name was Yehuda. To be attentive rather than getting lost in some people, because the ideas are so powerful, they detach. And there's always a balance in life between idealism and realityism and pragmatism. People that are too grounded in reality have no ideas, and all it is is just living the day-to-day and responding to this pressure point, that pressure point, as opposed to having a firm set of ideas and conviction and principles, but then being able to change them. So one of them is just being in touch with reality. This whole Hesder movement is a product which Ravami Tal founded. It's really a product of realizing that the world is changing and the old models of yeshivas are no longer relevant, or not no longer relevant, but no longer sufficient. There has to be new models to take the Jewish people into a world of army, into a world of Eretz Israel. The second part of Ravami Tal's changing his mind is confidence. If you have a strong identity and you know who you are, Ideally, that identity should be based on your relationship with the Kaddish Baruch but also a strong inner self. You're not defined by your opinions. You're defined by your identity, and your opinions can change. Very often, people take security in their opinions and their positions because that's how they see themselves. And it's very hard to change your identity. All of a sudden, you give up your identity, you're lost. So what's your identity based upon? We call those people opinionated. That they're, they're always opinions and, and positions, and they state them with a lot of passion and a lot of zeal and a lot of puritanism. And... Your, your identity should be yourself. And then you have opinions, and those opinions can change without creating an identity crisis. And it's important to have convictions, it's important to have principles, but not to get to the point where the principles overcome more basic and substantive parts of yourself, kindness, piety, devotion, Torah. That's why you have to be very, very careful not to get lost in ideology. What type of Jew are you? Modern Orthodox, Datilomi, B'nai Akiva, Haredi, what's your political position? What do you think about women? What do you think about... Those are opinions. It's important to stake the opinions. It's important to change your mind from time to time. But your identity 
promise you, when you get to Shemayim, none of those, Hashem's not going to ask you your opinions. Those aren't on the final test. Final test in Shemayim doesn't include your opinion about this or your opinion about that. Final test includes how much Torah did you learn? How much stucker did you give? Did you daven properly? Were you kind to your family? Were you kind to your, to your friends? Were you kind to your community? Did you work hard in Avodah Hashem? Opinions come and go, but sometimes because they're so flashy and exciting and public and people are talking about them, women's learning, state of Israel, it becomes people's identity rather than your opinions. So Rami Tal's ability to change his opinion, I think, was based on one, because he's very connected to the reality. He's very in touch with reality. He becomes attached and allows ideas and idealism taken to some abstract world. Second of all, because he's a very confident person, his relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and that's your identity. And try to dig, try to become as core and real and authentic as you can about issues of substance, not fleshy issues that people are talking about. That shouldn't define you. You should have an opinion, but you can change those opinions. without really changing who you are as a person. Okay. We welcome Rabbi Robinson, who's come to be with us in the yeshiva for a few weeks. He's one of the most famous rabbis in North America. So a big honor. So these are the boys from the Southern Hemisphere. They're the, they're the survivors. They're the survivors. So Rav Amital would be very fond of the following story. We talk a lot about tefillah and a lot about kavana during tefillah. So evidently, the Talmidim of the Baal Shem Tov, remember in the early stages of Hasidus, it wasn't so organized and it wasn't so institutionalized. So there were a lot of Hasidus Yerubayim, but there were also many charlatans roaming the countryside. This is by definition, Hasidus was an anti-establishment movement. It was trying to create a, a different alternative to leadership. It wasn't one appointed as the rabbi of the town. You had Rebbe roaming the hill, hillsides and healing people. And, and it was very scattered and non-institutionalized. So there were Hasidic of course, and leaders of the Hasidic movement. And there were people who were imposters who were roaming the countryside saying they were leaders and saying they were... So the Talmudim of the Baal Shem Tov asked the Rebbe, how can we tell the difference between a real Hasidish Rebbe and the faker, an imposter? So the best told this Talmudim, if any Rebbe tells you that he has a foolproof solution for Kavana during davening, you should know he's a faker. Because he's selling you a bridge, he's selling you a snakeskin oil. If any Rebbe comes and says, oh, here's the way you're going to solve Kavana, then you should know he's really... An imposter is not authentic. Now, what does this story constitute? What does it convey? I think two things. First of all, one of Ravamital's favorite lines, or maybe five or six, this is not, I'm discussing stories, not lines. I can give a whole series of Ravamital's favorite lines. But one of his favorite lines was, and you can speak to anyone who studied with Ravamital, met Ravamital, ain't patentum. Patent would be a Hebrew word for shortcuts. In English, it's patent, but Patent in Hebrew means a shortcut, a fix, an easy angle, a quick solution. Um, don't, don't try to skip steps in life. If you want to have kavan and davening, then it's not there's one golden rule that if you lock into this one rule, you have this particular kavana during a particular part of davening, all of a sudden your kavana will be comprehensively better in a routine. Kavana is a struggle. Like everything else in life is a struggle. And very often, especially in a world in which at least in the physical world, we're becoming more and more adept at quick fixes. Used to be you wanted to lose weight, you went on a different diet, you took an exercise regimen. 
today you can take a pill, today you can have a band put onto your stomach. Things tend to happen quicker. You want to travel somewhere, it used to be a journey. You used to travel three months, a couple of weeks, a couple of days even. Today, I'll be in Australia in three and a half weeks. Again, it's a long trip, but it's fairly instant. I'll get on a plane Tuesday night, but I'll be Thursday morning. So things are happening very quickly in the external world. We sometimes expect that same rapidity and the same accelerated pace in the existential world. And when we have problems in our lives or religious changes we want, wouldn't happen immediately? Wouldn't there be this one artificial sometimes um, step that we can take? It's a process. It's going to have ups and downs. It's going to be a struggle. There'll be accomplishments and setbacks. And it's, it's so hard to get used to that because we don't live in that world, in the external world. But that's really true of the internal world. So if you're looking for a kavana during davening or any other solution, there's no quick fix. It's not going to happen overnight. There's no angle on it. Life's a process. Don't think, oh, you can outsmart the competition by finding something that no one's thought about before. It's a process. The second thing which this story conveyed is not in general, in patent, in this is an example of a general condition, a general phenomenon, but more importantly about tefillah. Rav Amital wanted authenticity. He wanted us to be authentic. And because of that, he had to build a different type of yeshiva that he thought was more reflective of the changing community in the Tati Lumi world. Because of that, you have to accept who you are as a human being. And even if those that humanity brings limitations, don't, don't always get frustrated and guilty if you bang up against the glass ceiling that you just can't. This is something that people have talked about a lot of Ayatollah's accepting of our humanity, the Katskavar, Anshe Kodesh, Tionli. As much as we try to be angels, we're always going to be humans, we're always going to have our flaws, we're always going to have our guilt, we're always going to have our sins. And probably the place where authenticity is felt the most acutely is in tefillah. Now, if you're authentic and honest about tefillah, then you realize you're not really going to have come out of that much, especially in our world. So you can either fake yourself into saying, well, I'm really, really having Kavana. Or you can say, you know what, it's really hard. And awareness of the problem is half of the solution, the fact that I'm not just walking to shul every day and blabbering ideas, but at least I'm aware. Just think about how did you do today during your davening? Did you have full Kavana? So you can say you did, and you can say that your tefillah will be meaningless unless you don't, or you can say, you know what, that's a level I can try to reach, And but even the Baal Shem Tov said it's not something that's so easy, and it's not something you can expect to be really accomplished at. So the authenticity and accepting your humanity and being honest means that sometimes you can't role-play certain um, pious achievements that you just don't reach. You can role-play and say, well, I am going to have kavana, I am going to have kavana, I am going to have kavana, but when you repeatedly fail to have kavana, you have three choices. You can either sustain that myth, you could feel guilty forever and plunge into despair, or you could just say, I'm a human being. And struggles in kavana are built into davening. And I'll just do my best, and I'll be aware of the problem, aware of the struggle, but I won't expect myself or make believe I'm playing a role. Rabbi Tav would always quote for us one of the great Hasidish Rebbeim who said, at any time you try to daven beyond your league, try to make yourself into something else during davening, a bigger tzaddik than you are, and try to daven like someone you're not, then that's when the machshav zaras kick in. That's when you have strange thoughts. Because you're not being yourself. You're being someone else. You're role-playing. And then, of course, when you're role-playing, you've got these non-natural, non-indigenous thoughts that start to, as long as you're being yourself in tefillah. So let me give you an example. Ramital would tell us that Nila, very famous Sichai uh, would give, where Karav Hashem l'chol karav l'chol MS. Hashem is closest to people who have MS, who called him honestly. Now, at that point, I would think that the Sichai, this is Nila, right? After Yom Kippur, 
full day of purification, a field, full day of self-improvement. You think he says, and now's the time to be MS. Now's the one time during your year you can reach that MS and be close to Hashem. And Ramitol said, who can really have MS? MS is beyond any human being. Even today, on Nila, how can we really say that we're in Anshe MS? If Hashem is only close to those people who have MS, Hashem would say, Even if you don't have MS, at least be brokenhearted about it. If you're brokenhearted, then Hashem will be close to you, not as an Ish MS, but as an Ish So the second part of this story is, it's such a perfect metaphor, because during davening, we want to be our most authentic self. There's no ritual to hide behind. There's no Maisa, there's no cognitive experience such as Talmud Torah. We're just talking to Hashem. And it's very hard to talk to Hashem with a clear head. So we can either pummel ourselves and punish ourselves, we can make believe we're having kavana, or we're not, we can try to sit out of kavana, we can just say, it's a process, it's hard, even Baal Shem Tov knew there wasn't something accessible, and we'll just be as, as sincere as we can, but realize that it's not going to be as, uh, it's not going to be a simple or, or easy experience. Okay, so those are the two ideas expressed by this story. Number one, there are no shortcuts. Number two, honesty and accepting human limitations. Okay? Have a good day, everyone. A lot of Ramital's phraseology that's associated with Ramital is humanity, naturalism, human instinct, which is strange because in Avodah Hashem, you have to submit yourself to Kodesh Baruch's will. And that's more or less the story of the Akedah, the Kodesh Baruch commands Avram towards something which is counterintuitive at a human level, and the challenge, more or less, is for Avram to submit to Hashem and, and to prioritize Hashem's will over his own personal instincts, morality, and love for his son. But there are points, in, of course, in Avram's Hashem where you want our personal sentiments and our morality and our ability. For example, if we don't just act out of halachic mandate, but we act when we think we have to be kind and, and and correct and compassionate. But what about the halachic realm? Can human morality and, and natural instinct, can it affect halacha? You think halacha is this cold, objective system when it comes to interpersonal relationships, so you don't just act because halacha commands you, you act because you feel it's right and you bring your moral sentiment and you bring your moral values. But in halacha, it's calculus. Halacha is either right or wrong. Halacha is Hashem's ratzam. You have to follow Hashem's ratzam regardless of human instinct. So in a very famous sicha, Rav Amital quoted a grand, great-grandson of the Chassam Sofer, wrote a sefer on Kulin called the Dor Revi. And in the Dor Revi, he poses the following question. What happens if you were stranded on a desert island, and to survive you were facing the following choice? You could either eat non-shechted meat, you could, I don't know, let's call it even a pig. Let's say you grabbed a pig and you, and you ate it, so you're violating a clear Isidaraisa. Or your other choice would eat human flesh of a survivor, which is definitely not usher at the same level of severity as pig meat or non-shechter meat. It doesn't appear as a lav in the Torah. At most, you're violating a mitzvah's essay. You're probably even violating less, maybe you're bonding. Cannibalism is not usher min It doesn't have to be. It's disgusting. It's repulsive. So if you look at it from a pure halacha calculus standpoint, maybe you should eat the human flesh because it's less usher than the pig meat or it's less usher than the non-shechter meat. You want to try to limit your serum. This was an instance in which you could use human emotions to affect the psak. And in this case, even though it's more usher to eat pig meat, you should eat the pig meat or the uh, non-kosher fish. Because the alternative to consume human flesh is just repugnant and repulsive.
Now, what does this mean? Can therefore you suspend halacha just based on moral sensitivity? You find halacha you don't think is right in your own moral world? You Obviously not. Halacha is immutable. Halacha is, is based on the same principle of Akedah Yitzchak. Sometimes you understand it, sometimes you don't understand You keep halacha. The many halachas you don't understand as teenagers that you'll understand one day as grown adults. A lot of sexual laws which seem very restrictive and very suffocating were held up to the Western civilization standards of healthy sexual expression. When you're older, you'll realize that the Shabbos when you're younger seems very um, restraining and suffocating. When you get older, you realize, even when you're younger, you realize the value of Shabbos at a certain point. So you follow Hashem's Ratzon and some things you'll never understand in life. But this is a case where you are in a halachically compromised situation to begin with. Namely, you're on a desert island. You have to eat something. You have to violate an Isser. You don't have kosher food. You don't have Rami Lefi. You're going to violate an Isser. You're either going to violate pygmy or human flesh. So now you're in a halachically compromised situation when you choose which Isser to violate, because you have to, for Pikuach Nefesh, when you choose which Isser Hashem wants you to consume, do you base it on cold calculus, which is more Isser, which is less Isser? Or do I thread human sensibility into that cold calculus? So be very careful. The Ramtel statement should never allow you to think that you can violate halacha because it doesn't accord with your human sensitivity. Under normal conditions, you wake up one morning, you have a mitzvah, you perform that mitzvah whether you agree with it or not. It's just a question of threading psak with human sensitivity in unique situations. So, for example, let's say a person stuck, and the two people stuck at an army base, and all you have is one kezayis of matzah. Sound familiar? Two people in the desert. So, when it comes to the two two people in the desert, it's a clear gavar. You have a mitzvah of pikuach nefesh, because people are going to die. Here, what should you do? Should one person eat the kezayis and be out to the mitzvah, and the other person not eat it at all? So, Rami Tal suggests that maybe you should share the kezayis. Because here again, you're not, not saying, oh, I don't want to eat matzah, because it doesn't make sense to have an upset stomach, because why should I eat ancient bread, unleavened, that has nothing to do with you're saying, now this uh, kazais matzah, and if I follow the strict extrapolation of that gemara of the one flask of water, maybe one person should eat the kazais or the other person draws draws. But what, what type of Pesach is that if you're sitting there chopping away in your matzah and the person next to you is not having any matzah? So here's when you're in compromised situations and the lachak isn't clear, so can you use rather than when you're facing a clear and obvious psak and shulchan arach, you can never, never violate a clear and obvious psak and shulchan arach because of human sensitivity. So this is interesting. The role of naturalism, human instinct, not just in Avodah Hashem in general, which Ramita wrote extensively about, you can read his safer, it's full of this issue, but how can natural instinct affect psak? So it can't overtell psak, but when you're in compromised situations and it reflects the fact that psak is not something which is, you can't paskin, if I tell what I always say this, you can't paskin through a computer. Psak is real, psak is human beings, psak is understanding their needs. I spoke a couple of weeks ago before some of you guys joined a story once where a man came from a kibbutz to the yeshiva on a cold winter Shabbos in the middle of a snowstorm and told Ravamitel that the electricity to the hothouse that was the incubator in which his little chicks and eggs were being warmed, the, the electricity fell on Shabbos. So what can he do? So Ravamitel put on his coat, put on his boots, and trekked all the way to Kvaratzion to hear the cry of the chickens. Not the cry of the baby, the cry of the chickens. I can't really paskin here sitting here in a warm, in a warm kitchen in a lunch voter in Gush. In, in, yeshiva, in the Gush Yeshiva, then, had this person in Kavaratzon. Yeah. Let me tell you what I would say. If you want to pass it about a Shabbos elevator, go climb the steps first.
It's easy to say the Shabbos elevator is possible to actually go there and see you've got 10, 12 flights of stairs for older people. So first go feel, if we're going about any guna, don't sit in your office, go speak to the woman, see what she's going through, see her pain. Again, you can't just annul the marriage, it's not a Jewish concept, but can you rely on this sniff, can you rely on that approach? So halach has to be real and personal, A, in your identification with the events, and B, even sometimes by infusing the halacha calculus with human moral instincts within halacha. Compromise situation, two choices, what should you say? Another case which is even more provocative, which I'm not sure I agree with, that the Doravi said, is what happens if you're in a burning building and you have to run out in the middle of the night and you're not dressed? Should you just run out naked? Should you put on clothing with the only clothing available or women's clothing? Again, it's a hypothetical case. So the only clothing around is a dress. So you can either run out naked, which wouldn't be any sir, but it would be so offensive to human sensibilities, or should you cover your body with a woman's dress? So the Dara said you should cover yourself with a woman's dress. I, quite frankly, I find that case a little bit more problematic. Because here, you're not choosing which is it to violate. You're choosing between non-halachic violation and halachic violation. In the case of the desert island, you have to violate halacha for the sake of the Gordon. There's no violation, you didn't kind the mitzvah. In the case of the burning building, there's no halachic prohibition running out naked. It's just uncomfortable to you and to others. But can you violate halacha because of personal discomfort? I'm not so sure those cases are similar, though the Doravi, this Greek grandson of the Chsam Sofer, quoted them in Jack's position. Anyway, the afterword of that story is that after Avamital gave his shear, everyone ran to Rav Lichtenstein and asked him what he would do, which meat he would consume, the pig meat or the human flesh. And Ravaran said, the human flesh. Ravaran said that halacha has to be calculated, and, and it, there's a very important moment in the lore of yeshiva that you can have Rosh Hashiva's disagreeing respectfully about an idea. There was no argument or debate. It was just an interesting question about the ability for human instinct in very, very limited cases. I want to say this for the tenth time in the last five minutes. Don't say that, therefore, I disagree with the halacha because of human sensibility, I can over-retaliate. It means under unique situations, you can influence the halachic process internally if there is flexibility within the halachic process through human emotions rather than just cold, calculated say. Okay? This is a very, very um, profound concept which is conveyed, not a story that Rav Amital told us, but a story that happened with Rav Amital or a policy. At a certain point, especially early in the yeshiva, I think it's changed since then, the level of kashras came up in yeshiva. What type of kashras should we have in yeshiva? Now, for people that live outside of Israel, that seems like a hard question, a confusing question. Remember, in, in Melbourne, it's basically one level of kashras, because... Certainly in America and England, where you've got large consumer bases, so certainly in America, the OU has a lot of leverage when they negotiate for kashas because the companies want their kashas supervision. In Israel, it's the reverse. In Israel, we want the entire country to eat kosher, from Jews and non-Jews. In Melbourne, you're only interested in kosher food for people that want kosher food. There are a lot of Jews that don't keep kosher. But here, because of a national um, consciousness, the national responsibility, we want the entire country to keep kosher as best as possible. So we want the nat- national providers of poultry and of produce and of milk, we want them to be kosher, Tanuva and Osem. So who has the leverage when we negotiate with Tanuva if Tanuva knows that we need them to be kosher? They've got all the leverage, therefore we can't demand exacting standards. That's why the base level of kosher in the country is not as high as it is in Khazars, and people keep extra kosher levels for various aspects. I will, I, will, I will only eat certain types of meat. I won't eat all kosher meat. And when you go to restaurants, I'm sure you've talked about it. That's just to understand the difference in kosher. So you think that in yeshiva, you'd want to have the highest 
most surpassing level of kashrus because it's yeshiva. At least when Ramitel started the yeshiva, he was makbid that the yeshiva, not makbid, but he recommended the yeshiva not adopt the highest badat's level of kashrus or during shemitah when there were questions about whether to rely on what's called the heter mechira, which is a very, very weak heter. In early stages, Ramitel worried that if in yeshiva, boys would be eating this level of kashras, it would be too difficult for them to transition when they got home. And it would be, create tensions and rifts and argumentations with their parents. Remember, in the early stages of this yeshiva, which really was the forerunner has the yeshiva, many of the families that boys came from were certainly not yeshiva families, they were not Torah families, parents hadn't been in yeshiva. In many cases, they weren't that religious. So he was very, very sensitive to the transition between yeshiva and when they returned home. Now, why is this important? Okay, The yeshiva movement, which I talked about with you last week, essentially was a burst of energy. It created Torah force, Torah excitement, and it radically transformed the Ashkenazi world over the last 220 years. On the other hand, it's very separatist, and we talked about that also. Separate language, separate clothing, separate cities, separate locations, different way of going about things. As part of that, and it has to be, as part of that, there became almost a disrespect for people that weren't part of the yeshiva movement. And the way that that disrespect was conveyed is, oh, they're balabatim. They're the balabatim. The real firm kite is in the yeshiva belt, yeshiva bachrim, this internal laboratory that's pure, that's elevated, that's intense. And people outside, oh, they're from, but not really. They're really so from, and, and their standards really aren't. Rav Amital didn't have a taste for that. And that's one of the differences between how he built this yeshiva and yeshivas like it, and that has their ethos, and the classic yeshiva belt. He had a tremendous respect, and here's a phrase he would always use, for the Yudi Apashot, the simple Jew. We'll talk about how this different manifestations. The simple Jew who wasn't learned, his father wasn't learned, he didn't come from a scion of dynastic rabbinic leaders. A simple Jew who comes to davening every day, on his tefillin, keeps kosher, performs mitzvahs, performs chesed, and he never wanted the yeshiva to come at the cost of that appreciation of the simple Jew, of the Yudi Pashur. And this story about kashras levels manifests that and reflects that, that parents at home and the way they were conducting their homes in a simple way are to be respected and they could be the source of inspiration and growth rather than this sharp severing from the world of the simple, uneducated balabas. And I want you to contrast that phrase that he said so often, the simple Pashat Yid, with a phrase that you may have heard that's very popular in the yeshiva world. And it seems similar, but it's very, very different. Have you ever heard the word Pintaliyid? A Pintaliyid is a Yiddish expression for as much as a Jew has, has uh, strayed, has strayed from the derech, there's still a part of him that's Jewish. And if you could just identify the part that's Jewish and ignite it and, and, and magnify it, then, then you'll, you'll be successful in. But what does a pintaliyid mean? That you'll be successful in igniting that little part of him into something larger and bringing him back to the real firm kite, to the real way of performing. That's, that's the fuel, that's the spark, and if you can just ignite it, then you can create a conflagration, an inferno, bring him into real firm kite that's being expressed in the Shifa world. Whereas a pashadiyid means, he's a pashadiyid, he doesn't have necessary education, you certainly can't learn the way we're learning in yeshiva, but there's not just value, but value that maybe we don't have in yeshiva, because sometimes there are values that get lost in the world of sophistication and thought and learning and chakiras. And 
So, for example, I don't know if you've had the opportunity. Rami Dal didn't speak a lot about this, but if you've had the opportunity to sit with Sephardic Jews, who, uh, and when you see Sephardic Jews, you have anyone diving in Sephardi Shul? Right? So Sephardic Jews didn't undergo yeshiva movement. So, first of all, that's why you, they don't really have the same levels of yeshivas that the Ashkenazi world has, and a lot of Sephardim that want to learn Torah at high levels end up going to Lakewood and to Mir and to join these. They are developing, of course, Sephardi yeshivas in the last 20, 30 years, but you see a simplicity and a purity and a family values and a respect for parents and a keep whatever aim. It sometimes gets a little bit lost in the high-paced world of the Ashkenazi and we're moving from yeshiva to yeshiva and from city to city. But I thought not talk about that. I'm just using that as a, refer- as a reference point. I think the two ways in which it came to the fore in Ravamital's thought were as follows. First of all, he wasn't from the world of Brisk. He wasn't from the world of Lita. He didn't come from the world of Eastern Europe, White Russia, Latvia, Lita, Lithuania, that produced all the great yeshivas and all the great thinkers. He came from the world of Hungary. Hungary was the world developed by the Chassam Sofer. Hungary, they would always say that in the Litvishi yeshivas, they're building Gedolin. In the Hungarian yeshivas, we're just building simple balabatim. And the goal was not to build these great, incredible, titanic thinkers, but just, and the style of learning was more bikiyas, and even the Ian was less categories and brisk and brisker derach, where himself is a much more balabatish type of learning. Again, in yeshiva belt, this was oftentimes scorn. Now, that's a balabatish idea rather than a logical construct. But for Ravamital, the attention he, Ravamital was a, was a, expert in tens of thousands of Shailos Vitruvos. Shailos Vitruvos are much more um, are much more anecdotal than they are systemic. Every time you learn a Gebarim Sachem, you say, how can I fit this into the overall system of Shas? Every time you are facing a Shailos Vitruvos, you're saying, how is this case different? What are the circumstances in this case that I have to look at that are different? The woman, the chicken, the, the guna, the, the contract, the conditions, the Bechor. Every case is different, so it's much less systemic, it's much more differentiated. So in the style of learning, it was very much a Hungarian style that took pride in Balabatim and less envy or less emulation for the yeshiva of Elden. The second issue is, of course, how this affected Zionism, because Zionism is essentially, when you strip it down to the bone, is essentially saying that there are simple Jews out there that maybe no longer put on tefillin like we do and still are wearing our tefillin now and don't want to learn Tarakim Mitzvahs, but there's a simple, incohate, primal yearning to return home and to be part of Jewish history and to fight for Jewish history. And the ability to respect that expression, even though it doesn't clothe itself in high-minded, humorous, halachic observance, Torah learning, is very much something that I think Rav Amital gave us through his um, heroicism, or at least his, his um, regard of the simple Jew, the simple Yid. So... Think about that term, Yehudi Pashut, a simple Jew, and contrast it, let's say, with how the yeshiva world sometimes in the past, I don't think it's true anymore, but in my time, was very, very strident, that balabatim, that don't know how to keep halacha, and the people are like, yeah, you're in yeshiva now, now keep kashrut the right way. When you go home, try your best to keep kashrut with your parents who are barely hanging on, as opposed to creating a continuity and a blend and a merging between the two, and contrast it with this concept of a Pintalian, in which he's straying very far, I can restore him to where I am by finding that part of him that's still alive and still flourishing, rather than saying there's some value in that person's Judaism that maybe I can learn from rather than just disregard. Okay?